0: Thank you, band. I love worshiping with you. As we continue in our All for One series in the book of Ephesians, I would invite you to uh, return to Ephesians chapter 2. If you did not turn there earlier, you can turn there now. And as you are turning, I just want to remind you that uh, it's because His mercy is more that He gives us this resurrection power in Christ. As we've been pushing through uh, the book of Ephesians, we're, you know, we're in week six now and we're just getting to chapter two. So uh, we had to spend a little time uh, hovering, letting that helicopter stay there for a little bit so we could look a little more in depth at chapter one. So I want to recap for you before we get too far into this the core realities that we've been looking at. The reason that we want to do this is this is the lens, or these are the lenses through which we want to understand the text. When we see how Paul has written this, who he has written it to, and we understand a little more about what he's trying to accomplish here, then we can see what it is that God is saying, not only to the Ephesians and the churches around that area in the first century, but what he's saying to us in this big picture, core reality, and the transformation that he expects to see in us from it. So as we look at the whole book, we saw that God's great purpose is to bring all things together under his kingdom rule in Christ. That's the theme of Ephesians. We're going to see this this continue to play out today. In fact, today, I think, is is really the the pinnacle of it, or today and next week, chapter 2. It kind of hinges here. And everything else kind of builds to and proceeds from the ideas that we see here. But God's great purpose and the theme of this book is that he's bringing everything together. He's reconciling all things to himself in Christ. So that by the time everything comes to fruition, when the time is full, and God's kingdom is manifest, we will see the entire creation... Not just people, but creation reconciled to God. The curse reversed so that we are back where we belong in perfect intimacy with God. So then he begins this letter in chapter 1 with this idea of how blessed we are in Christ. That God's glory is displayed in His grace toward us in Christ. When we see the first half of the first chapter of this book, That's what he's saying. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. So everything that we could possibly ever need or want, everything that is spiritually true of the begotten Son of God is by God's decree, by God's infinite matchless grace, true of the adopted children of God. Let that sink in for a moment. We need to be looking at this entire letter through these lenses. God's glory is displayed in His grace toward us in Christ. We had to stop for just a minute because there was so much doctrine packed into chapter 1. And so much of that had to do with things that... that. Human religion has made controversial. Let me say that again. Human religion makes controversial what the faith that we have in Christ makes plain. God has written the Bible to reveal Himself, not to confuse us. So we need to set aside sometimes our framework to be able to look at what the text says. So we took some time to focus in on the idea that in Christ we are chosen and secure. We get that that scary word, predestination, in in chapter 1. So we had to stop and look at it. And and really what we are seeing here is that God's God's glory uh, is displayed in His grace toward us in Christ so that our destiny in Christ is as settled as God's sovereignty. God has chosen us. God has made us His. So we don't have to doubt it. We don't have to wonder about it. We don't have to fear it. We just got to stop fighting Him. Stop. Stop resisting. When you feel him, when you hear him calling to you, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. Let go. That doesn't mean trust your feelings. It means trust your maker. Surrender to him. Our destiny in Christ is as settled as God's sovereignty we recognized in that chapter that everything that God does, all that God does to give life to his people, he does in Christ. It is not based on my worthiness or your worthiness. It's based on Christ's. We are all stuck. We're in the same boat together. Nobody is clean. Nobody gets to come to God and say, Well, you know, I did pretty well this week. You know, my my, my ledger's looking pretty good. I got a little little more on the good side of the scale than on the bad side of the scale. And since God is just so gentle and tender and loving, I know He knows I'm doing my best. When we have that mentality, we have grossly, tragically, misunderstood the nature of who God is. God is merciful and compassionate. But He is only merciful and compassionate because there is a standard. There's the holiness of God that cannot be ignored. And God could not be just if He did not uphold that standard. So stop with this idea that I somehow offer something to God. I don't. How small would God have to be if my best efforts could possibly impress Him? If you're honest with yourself, you don't need somebody beating you over the head with a Bible You already know you're a sinner. You already know that even when you try hard, and you never try as hard as you think you do, even when you do your best, and you never really do your best, your motives are tainted. Our very best is like filthy rags on our own. So it's important for us to recognize that I don't have to fear that I'm not good enough for God. I can know for sure I'm not good enough for God. That's a guarantee. He tells us that. We're going to see more of that today. But the salvation that He offers, the good news, is that God gives us life, and everything that He does, in choosing and adopting and predestining us, all of these things that He does in making us holy and making us His, He does it in Christ, not in you, not in me. His work in Christ means there's no reason for us to fear. Last week we talked about the idea that it's only in the context of the church that we can fully know and experience God. That's by His design. We'll talk more about that next week, so I won't spend a lot of time on that. But keep in mind this lens of the church as we work through Ephesians. Everything that we see from beginning to end has that as the backdrop. What God has done for us in Christ is not just an individual thing. It is a corporate body life thing. And so this idea of, you know, the Lone Ranger Christian, I can do my own thing. I don't really need church. I don't really need others. I just, I got my Bible. Maybe I can listen to a podcast once in a while. Something Real is a great podcast. You should check it out. Anyway, as uh, just, you know, let's focus here. Don't get too excited. As we're going through life, trying to do it ourselves, by definition, in doing that, we are sinning against God. Because God has called us together. He's wired us for it. Everything else falls short. As we are back in chapter 2 now, today we're going to uh, be pressing forward because as we sang earlier his mercy is more he gives us power in christ as i mentioned when i was reading it earlier in chapter 2 we see that god's grace to us in christ moves us from tomb to temple we're going to look at the first half of that today this idea that in christ the dead are made alive by grace for god's purposes and we are his workmanship and then Next week, we're going to look a little bit more at the idea that in Christ, those who are separated are reconciled by grace for God's purposes. And together as the church, we are His temple. So one of the things that that we want to notice here, in fact, you can turn, if you would, to uh, Genesis chapter 1. I'm not going to spend a lot of time reading it, and I'm having you turn to Genesis because it's easy to find. Genesis chapter 1, you know the story. Genesis means beginning, so what do you suppose is happening in Genesis? It's the beginning. And as God creates, He creates people. Genesis 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty, darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters, and God said, let there be light and there was light and as God continued to create and he said let there be there was and he gets to the end of creating all these things and every single aspect of it he says this is good then we get down to verse 26 then God said let us make mankind in our image in our likeness Verse 31, God saw all that He had made. And it was very good. Everything had been good, now it's very good. Because the pinnacle of His creation were His image bearers. When He created humanity to bear His image and to rule in His stead as vassal kings under Him. His sovereignty, His dominion through us In his creation, God sees what he has done and says, This is now very good. Now, as he placed man in this garden, you know there were two trees the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And he commanded them not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You notice he didn't command them not to eat of the tree of life. They could eat of every tree. Everything was available to them except for that one thing. And they broke it. In chapter 3 we see that, that Adam and Eve partake in the one thing they were not to partake of and it results in a curse. And God in speaking to the serpent, curses him for his role. and speaking to Eve, curses her for her role. Speaking to Adam, curses everything. Because Adam was responsible. And the very ground, the very creation, was broken and cursed. The consequence now of trading the knowledge of good and evil for life. Yes, for the first time they had access to knowing the difference between good and evil. And for the first time, they were separated from life. Sin brought death. As we look at at Ephesians 2, we see that the first part reverses the curse of Genesis 3. I won't have you turn to Genesis 11, but in Genesis 11 we find the story of the Tower of Babel where mankind unites to exalt itself against God. Let's show how great our technology is. We're going to build a tower to the sky so we can be the greatest. Same same quest that they had in the garden. The devil tricked them to make them think that they could usurp God. And the lie is that you can be like God. Why is it a lie? Because you're already like God. You already bear His image. But the implication is that you will be God. That separation in, in Genesis 3 leads to the unification of mankind against God in chapter 11. And in chapter 11, God says, this will not do. It confuses their language. And what we see pouring out from chapter 11 is the division of man against man, woman against woman, human against human, for the rest of the existence of humanity in a fallen world. They scatter. They go all over the earth, and they're divided. And there is once again chaos, confusion, And what we'll see in the second half of chapter 2 next week is that that portion reverses chapter 11. Instead of the division between people, now in Christ we're united, we're one. The dividing line still remains, however, between those who are dead and those who are alive. Let's turn our attention there in Ephesians 2 today. Our core reality as we walk through this, is that God gives us life by His grace that we might give our lives for His glory. You might notice the typo in your program, it's correct on your screen. God gives us life by His grace that we might give our lives for His glory. In other words, in Christ, the great love of God for His people turns the corpse of the sinner into the canvas of His grace. He takes what was worthless and dead and lifeless and He turns it into a masterpiece where He can display His glorious grace. Let's notice as we work through this in the first three verses our natural state. We see, our natural state. Paul says, As for you, you were dead. In your transgressions and sin, sins. In which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world. And of the ruler of the kingdom of the air. The spirit was now at work in those who are disobedient. Then he includes himself. First he's speaking to the Gentiles. Because this is a heavily Gentile church. Mixed with Jews. But heavily Gentile church. And Paul is writing with this in mind. And it's always in the background. The racism that we think of today was not a primary issue at this time the primary issue was the division the bigotry between Jew and Gentile the bigotry has always been there it just changes shapes amen we don't we don't change fundamentally in our sinfulness we hate that which is different we oppose that which we don't understand and so the bigotry that we see then Can translate to the bigotry we may talk about in our world today, even when it's different in flavor. But Paul looks at them and he says, As for you, you Gentiles, you you were dead in your transgressions and sin. Oh, but you know what? Verse 3 All of us were in that same spot. All of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh, following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. I prefer the rendering of the uh, NIV 84 edition. As you know, that's heaven's preferred translation. So, in, in that better rendering, it says we were by nature objects of wrath. We, in our natural state, are already condemned. Notice this, in ourselves, we are worse off than we ever realized. In ourselves, we are worse off than we ever realized. So often, we hear things approached from the perspective of sin is a sickness. And Christ has the cure for us. If, If we can turn to Him, we can be cured of this sickness. But notice, that's not what it says here. It doesn't say you were sick. You were were in bad shape. You were at death's door. Dude, you were dead. You were a corpse. You have nothing to offer God because you're dead. Not to be crass or, or to cause particular pain, but if you've ever been in a funeral home, at a funeral, and you see the body that's up there in the casket, it doesn't even look the same, does it? It's not the person that you knew. As my young son once said, it's it's just a shell. It's a very pretty shell sometimes, but it's just a shell. It has no more life in it than the casket that it's setting in. No more than the rock out in the yard. And that's where we are apart from Christ. In ourselves, we are so much worse off than we ever imagined. It's not a matter of Man, I I was doing really well. I was was born good, and then over time, the world corrupted me. This is the mentality that the social gospel preaches. The social gospel that became so popular around the turn of the 20th century and really faded out (laughs) following the ideas that, that were brought to light in World War I. The thought that if we just educate people, and if we take care of poverty, if we deal with the, the wealth gap, the wealth inequity, if we deal with these social injustices, then it will usher in the kingdom of God. And people will be saved. Here's the problem. They weren't sick. They didn't need improvement. People are dead. Every single One of us. No exceptions. Nobody gets a pass. Nobody is good in themselves. Not on a divine standard level. You might be better than the person next to you. (laughs) You might be worse. Keith, I see you looking at your wife. You're worse. The reality is when you are dead... There are no degrees. This isn't like the Princess Bride. Some of you might remember the Princess Bride and Miracle Max. And he says, I've seen worse. He's only mostly dead. We are all the way dead. Stone cold, rock hard, lifeless, dead. Worse than we ever imagined. This is the problem that we face. What does it mean that we're dead in sin like the rest? means those people that you look at out there and you think, man, they're really messed up. So are you. So are you. Maybe the corpse that they're in bears a few more scars, but it's still a corpse, and so is yours. There is no difference between the mutilated dead and the pretty dead, because you're still dead, and you got nothing to offer. So we need to get our minds right. The issue is not, it never has been, it never will be, how good a life did you live in this earth? The question is, are you alive at all? Because we are born physically alive, but spiritually dead. And dead people can't raise themselves. You cannot fix what's wrong with you. In John chapter 11, we see the story of Lazarus. You don't have to turn there. You can look at it for your homework. In this story, Jesus gets word. He and his his friends are a few towns over, and, and they get word that his dear friend Lazarus, you may remember the story of Martha and Mary. This is their brother. They're all friends with Jesus, and he gets word that Lazarus is sick. And Jesus is pretty chill about it. He says, this won't end in death. Now, Something happens. Lazarus dies. Four days later, Lazarus is still dead. Not mostly dead, all the way dead. Miracle Max has no hope for him. Jesus gets there and Martha's like, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died. But even now, I know that God will give you whatever you ask. I have no idea why she asked that. Because she did not seem to have any hope that there was anything that was going to happen. Why? her brother was dead. She was not, apparently, expecting Jesus to do a miracle and raise him. How do I know that? (laughs) Because when he asks her about it, she says, well, yeah, I I believe that he'll rise again at the last day, like all the rest of us. Because every good Jewish woman believed, every good Jew knew that the resurrection of all people would happen at the judgment. So Jesus says, you know, your brother's going to live again. Yeah, yeah, I, I get it, Lord. I, I understand that. But he's dead now. And Jesus says, wait a minute. I'm telling you, you're looking for the resurrection to come. I'm telling you, I am the resurrection. And the life. He who believes in me, that we were dead, yet shall he live. And he who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? The question he asked Martha is the same question he asks us today. What do you believe about Jesus? Because if you're dead, you can't fix it. There was nothing Lazarus could do to get out of that grave. But when Jesus showed up and Jesus said, Lazarus. Come forth. Lazarus didn't have a choice about it. Lazarus didn't think about it. Jesus said it, so he got up and came. The dead man walked. Mary and Martha, they were also dead. Peter, James, John, they were dead too. Pontius Pilate, Pastor Rich, all dead. That's what sin does. Sin separates us from God. See, just in a nutshell so we get this, I want to make sure I spit this out clearly. God created us for a relationship with Him. Perfect intimacy, He is life, He is the source of life, everything from Him, but sin, our sin, your sin, my sin, the sin we inherit from Adam, and the sin that we choose as we break the rules... Our sin separates us from God, separates us, cuts us off permanently and irrevocably from life, from the source of life. And the thing about sin, when you're dead, you can't fix it. Our sins can't be removed by our good works, by our good deeds, by all of the things we do that we think we can somehow add to what God is offering that we can impress him. You can't. Sins can't be removed. Dead men can't raise themselves. But the gospel, the good news, is that paying the price for your sin, my sin, Jesus died in our place. And he who is the resurrection and the life demonstrated that as the mighty power of God raised him from the dead. That's the beauty. God gives us life in Him. So that everyone who trusts in Christ, everyone who receives this gift, you can't do anything about it. You don't get to work yourself up to it. But if you just stop fighting Him and surrender and trust in Christ alone, you have eternal life. Life that starts now and lasts forever. It never ends. Never. Abundant, full, and free. So stop trying to make it happen and recognize that Jesus already paid it all. Just receive it. We need this because the reality is we can't raise ourselves We all need that resurrection power because we're all dead. Our natural state, worse than we ever realized, but check out God's intervention. Let's talk about God's intervention. God makes us alive in Christ by His grace. We're dead. It's pretty bad. However bad you think it is, it's worse. There is zero hope. None. But God, check it out in verse 4, but because of His great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, it's by grace you've been saved. And God, oops, I'm going to get ahead of myself. I get excited and I want to keep on reading. We'll save that. It's by grace that you've been saved. You've been made alive with Christ. He's rich in mercy. It's his love for his people that he describes in chapter 1 that leads him then to do what he talks about in chapter 1. We all, as I mentioned, needed the resurrection power of God in Christ. Now notice what what we see in chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. Let me back up to 18 because it's the beginning of the sentence. Paul prays for the church in Ephesus that the eyes of their heart may be enlightened in order that they may know the hope to which He has called you, the riches of His glorious inheritance in His holy people, and His incomparably great power for us who believe. What is that power? What are we talking about here? He says that power is the same as the mighty strength He exerted when He raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. We needed that resurrection power, that same mighty strength that he exerted in raising Christ from the dead, because all of us are dead. We're objects of wrath. We have no hope in ourselves. and We require this intervention. God makes us alive in Christ by his grace. In ourselves, we're worse off than we ever realized. God makes us alive in Christ by his grace. Turn, if you would, to Romans 5, just so we can get a a picture where Paul says this elsewhere. Now ride with me for a bit in Romans 5 and 6. I'm going to do my best not to stop and preach, but I make no promises. Romans 5, starting with verse 1, Therefore... Means everything he was talking about before. He's talked about being justified by faith. We're not made right by our works, but simply by trusting what God has done. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance shall we be saved through His life. Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received reconciliation. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, Genesis chapter 3, and death through sin, and in this way, death came to all people, because all sinned, we're all dead. We're dead in sin. Separated from the giver of life. To be sure, sin was in the world before the law was given, verse 13. But sin was not charged against anyone's account where there was no law. In other words, there can be no transgression if there's no law to break, even though the sinfulness that was present is already in us. It's in our nature. Nevertheless, 14. Death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, who is a pattern of the one to come. It's sinful to be separated from God, even if you don't have a Bible to tell you what that sin specifically is. 15, but the gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass of the one man, the breaking of the law by one, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Nor can the gift of God be compared with the result of the one man's sin, The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. It only took one sin to separate us from God. And with all of the vast oceans of sin since that time, it only took Jesus to take it away. 17, for if by the trespass of the one man, death reigned through the one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Consequently, in light of everything we just said, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. For just as through the disobedience of the one man the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man the many will be made righteous. The law was brought in so that the trespass might increase. In other words, so that we could see the sinfulness of our sin by having a law to break, which we were destined to do anyway because we already had wretchedness in us. Having the law made that clear. But where sin increased, grace increased all the more so that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. We were dead in sin because of Jesus. Now we have died to sin. We're those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know, That all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death. We were therefore buried with Him through baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead, through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Let me say that again. Just as Christ was raised from the dead, through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we've been united with Him in a death like His, we will certainly also be united with Him in a resurrection like His. For we know that our old self was crucified with Him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we'll also live with Him. <clears throat> For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God those things that are spiritually true of Christ being spiritually true of those who are in Christ, the death He died to sin, He died once for us, for all. And the life He lives, He lives to God that we in Him might live to God. In the same way, verse 11, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body. Therefore, therefore, Man, I don't want to keep reading, but we want to progress. God makes us alive in Christ by His grace. So we go from our natural state to this, our redeemed state. God's intervention moves us from our natural state to our redeemed state. Notice, in Christ, we are better off than we ever dreamed. In ourselves, we are worse off than we ever imagined. But in Christ, we are better off than we ever dreamed. What does it mean that God raised us with Christ and seated us in the heavenlies with Him? We'll look back at verse uh, 20 of chapter 1 in Ephesians, not in Romans. He exerted this mighty strength in raising Christ. Right? He exerted this power when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. Just as he raised Christ from the dead, we can recognize he raised him and he seated him in the heavenly realms. Paul uses the same language here in verse 6 of chapter 2. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with Him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. So because we are in Christ, as we talked about previously, being in Christ means that which is spiritually true of Christ is spiritually true of us. We have been raised from the dead. We were dead in our sin. We have been raised up with Christ by the mighty power of God in us, and seated with Christ in the heavenly places. So just as Jesus is seated on a throne bearing the authority of God, we are spiritually seated with Him until all things come to fruition in that final day when we will be seated with Him in His presence, actually ruling with Him. (coughs) Excuse me. In Christ, we're better off than we ever dreamed Our natural state is not under the rule of Christ. We saw that in the first couple of verses there, in verses 2 and 3. When we were dead, our natural way was to follow the ways of this world, the ruler of the kingdom of the air. the, The spirit was now at work in those who are disobedient. In other words, in case you're not sure, that's the devil. All of us lived among those dead zombie people at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh. I think the message renders it doing what we want when we want to do it. Doing it our way instead of God's way. That's the natural state. And like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But by God's grace, we're not only under His rule now, reversing Genesis 3. We're under God's rule, which is the theme that we see in the book of Ephesians. Everything brought together under Christ but we're actually ruling with Him. We're seated with Him in His authority. We participate in that ruling. At the end of chapter 1, we see a summary of God's plan. God placed all things under Christ's feet and appointed Him to be head over everything for the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him, who fills everything in every way. We, as the body of Christ... Are better off than we ever dreamed. Just as God's intervention takes us out of our natural state, conversely, God's purpose builds on our redeemed, our redeemed state. Notice God's purpose. God makes us his masterpiece for his glory, he makes us his masterpiece for his glory picking up with verse six we'll really see the concept come out in verses seven through ten god raised us up with christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in christ jesus in order that in other words there's a purpose there's a reason why is he doing it in order that the coming ages in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. In chapter 1, we saw that all of this salvation, God's choosing, God's adopting, God's predestining was for the praise of his glorious grace, for the praise of his glory. He displayed his glory by giving grace to us. Now he reiterates this again, in being very clear, God raised us up, seated us with Christ, in order that he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it's by grace you've been saved through faith. By grace, that means you got nothing to do with it. That's the point. That's, that's, I, I had a hard time getting past this because that memory verse of Ephesians 2 8 and 9, right? It's by like, By grace you've been saved. And that's not the point of the passage, it's a sub point of the passage. And I had a hard time getting past that as I was preparing. It's part of it. It's it's innate to it. But as God is doing this for His glory to display His grace, His kindness, His mercy to us so that the world can see and that those spiritual beings that we don't see can see His glory. He displays this in us because it's not us. There is nothing deserving in us there is no life in the dead it's by his grace that you're saved all God everything God not you it's not Jesus plus do your best it's not Jesus plus go to church it's not Jesus plus feed the poor it's Jesus only alone he died so that you could live his grace And you take hold of it by faith, but that's just kind of like at Christmas time or at my grandson's birthday. When I give my grandson his birthday gift, there's nothing left for him to pay. He doesn't have to go pick it out. He doesn't have to, you know, well, I got most of it paid, but, you know, you still got to kick in a couple dollars. All he's got to do is be happy to receive it. Open that present and own it. That's it. That's all we do in our salvation. I bring nothing to the table except the sin that makes it necessary. That's it. It's all God. It's for His glory. He does this so that He can display for the coming ages the incomparable riches of His grace through His kindness expressed to us. For it's by grace His kindness that you've been saved through faith you're receiving, trusting, surrendering to it and even this faith, this isn't from yourselves it's the gift of God all the way from top to bottom from God not by works so no one can boast it's not by your works that you're saved for we're God's handiwork, we're God's workmanship we're God's masterpiece I prefer The German term Meisterwerk. It's probably not going to be written in your Bible, but if you want to, you can write down Meisterwerk. It's one of my favorite terms. The the Greek term is poema, you might recognize as a word from which we get poem. But there's an artistic craftsmanship, there's a deliberateness in it that God has specifically put His hand. To you. He has designed you and sculpted you from before you were born so that you, as his elect, as his redeemed, would be his Meisterwerk, His magnum opus. His greatest play. That's what God has done. This isn't the the worthiness that you have in being born and bearing His image. This is a specific crafting of those that He has chosen and adopted and predestined to be holy and blameless, to make His own. And He's placed you in Christ. And if you are in Christ, then God has put you on the canvas as the display of His glory, not just for now, but throughout the coming ages. So that for eternity, God would be glorified by the grace He's given in you. And how can people know the grace that God has given in you, given to you? Because you're working. You're doing the things that reflect Him. You can't do anything to earn it. But because He's made you His, the only right response, the only right response is to live for Him. In sin, we're dead. In Christ, we're alive. In sin, we're God's enemies. In Christ, we're His workmanship. God makes us His masterpiece for His glory. If you remember the core reality that we see in this whole passage, God gives us life by His grace that we might give our lives for His glory. What's our response? Just to wrap this up. First of all, you've got to receive Him by faith. When I say receive Him by faith, it's not some magical term. It's a matter of trusting and accepting that what God says is true. Surrender to Him. Stop fighting Him. Accept it as true and then set your hope on it. It's not merely recognizing, okay, I I read the Bible, I believe the Bible is telling the truth and I see historical evidence for this. It's more than that. It's believing and setting your hope on that. Life is mine in Christ. Lord, have your way with me. Take my life and make it yours. I surrender everything to you because you are, you're the sculptor, and I'm your masterwork. When we have received him by faith, then Romans 12, 1 and 2 becomes the logical thing for us. Paul says there, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, in view of all of this life that he has given you by his incomparable, overwhelming, abundant, overflowing grace. I urge you to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and pleasing to God this is your true and proper worship do not conform to the pattern of this world but be transformed morphed changed by the renewing of your mind then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is is good, pleasing and perfect will what does that look like? We're going to talk about that in the, in the sermon next week. So I won't spend a lot of time on that. But it, it starts by getting our minds right. Colossians 3.1, we need to set our, set our minds, our hearts on things above. Don't get caught up here. This isn't going to last. We need to set our minds on things of love. Colossians 3.7, a little later in that chapter, it says, whatever you do, do it all in the name of Jesus. So when you get up in the morning, when you go to work, when you go to school, when you do whatever it is that you're doing, do it all in Christ's name, on His behalf, for His glory, recognizing that you are His and He has crafted you to put you in the position to be able to display His glory. 1 Corinthians 10.31 Whatever you do, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. You see the fruit of the Spirit coming out. You see in James chapter 1. I'm going to turn there real quickly. You don't have to join me, but you can pick that up on your homework. James chapter 1, verses 19 and following. My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. How how do we live for Him? How do we live for His glory? Make ourselves living sacrifices? Take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen. Slow to speak. Slow to become angry. Because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Therefore get rid of all the moral filth, the evil that's so prevalent, and humbly accept the word planted in you which can save you. Notice he's talking about getting rid of it in you. Not getting rid of it out there in the world. Getting rid of it in you. Live He continues, those who consider themselves religious, now we could substitute righteous or devout or or someone devoted to God, and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues, deceive themselves. Their religion is worthless. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this. This is how, in your devotion to God, you can demonstrate that you've been changed. You can't earn points with Him. But if you want to demonstrate that you've been raised from death to life, keep yourself under control. Do what the Word says. And he goes on to say, the religion that he considers pure and faultless is the kind that looks after widows and orphans in their distress. And keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Next week we'll talk more about, or not next week, next week we're going to talk specifically about uh, what it means to be the church why this is important and the unity that comes from that but in coming weeks when we get to chapters four five and six we're going to specifically see what it looks like when you are god's workmanship prepared in advance the works that he has for you you live them out and when you do that he gives us a picture of it next week we're going to see that we're not merely individual works of art but we are the master's gallery together we're the temple in which his glory is displayed let's pray Father God, you are just so amazing. Your kindness to us, your compassion toward us, completely unmerited. There's there's just no part of us that deserves your attention at all, let alone that you would set your love upon us. We have more often actively sinned against you than we have submitted to you. And even when we're not actively consciously sinning we're so guilty of forgetting you. Prioritizing other things over you. And yet Lord because of your great love for us your incomparable riches of grace you have given to us as an inheritance you have taken this dead man brought him to life father there is no way to thank you for that other than to live for your glory to make our lives a living sacrifice to you Father, we thank You for Your great mercy that outweighs and outnumbers our sin. Father, we thank You for the amazing grace that You give to us. The resurrection power that You have set upon us in Christ as You've united us with Him. So we offer You our lives, Father. Having been saved by Your grace, We choose to live for your glory. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.